0: Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gere. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And If you'd like to let us know you're here, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill it out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. We appreciate you being with us today. And today is week three of our new series, If God Gave You a Brain, It's Okay to Use It in Church. And today we're talking about interpreting the Bible. Before we get to that, I do have an exciting announcement I want to uh, talk about, and that is our Lent Sermon Series. Uh, Lent is a a season of preparation before Easter. It starts in mid-February. Our Lent Sermon Series is going to be based on this book, uh, Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile, by Brian Zond. And every week, the sermon will be based on... um, on the book. And then every following Wednesday, we're going to have a new online connect group led by Travis and Kristen Laverin And you'll get to discuss the chapters that we just covered in the sermon that Sunday before. And it's also a chance to experience community here during the COVID shutdown and, uh, and spend some time, you know, for an hour or so in that online connect group every week. Um, and so we're excited about this series. The basis of this book is that when Jesus uh, arrived on the scene 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, the way of Jesus was countercultural to the Empire. And now we find ourselves in 21st century America in a time of uh, rising Christian nationalism. This weird fusion of, of politics and religion and even militant behavior like we saw in the insurrection attempt at the Capitol. And for people who want to follow Jesus Christ, the the Jesus we read about in in the Bible, we're asking ourselves the the same kinds of questions we're discussing in this series. Can a thinking person be a Christian? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in a time when we're seeing this this, uh, rising Christian nationalism wanting some kind of an empire based on uh, ideology and white supremacy and even violence? We just live in such a troubling time, and this book is about helping thinking followers of Jesus navigate through what it means to follow Jesus in the time we live in. And so, I can't think of a more relevant topic to talk about during Lent. And um, I want to invite you to go ahead and order your book, and and uh, and then we'll start reading it right before the series begins in mid-February, and then the very last week of that series, Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. Our special guest will be Brian Zond, the author of the book. Brian's going to join us here by video during our service and he'll talk about the book and and uh, go into you know more detail about his own life and, and how he's wrestled with these issues. So very excited about this uh, new Lent series starting here in uh, mid-February and then the online connect group uh, every Wednesday uh, after that first uh, Sunday of the series. So uh, just wanted to announce that. And so now, um, We're continuing this series if god gave you a brain it's okay to use it in church and our guest speaker experienced an issue last night trying to get us the sermon online the the video online and so we had to kind of look for a backup and and those of you who have been around for a while know that uh, i will often play uh, videos uh, uh, made by a pastor named adam hamilton who's the pastor of the church of the resurrection in kansas city And he actually gave a sermon on a similar topic, interpreting the Bible, a couple of weeks ago. And so we're going to watch that video for the sermon today, and then I'll come back and wrap up the service after that. You're gonna see Adam in his Kansas City Chiefs gear because they're in the playoffs. And uh, Adam is, uh, for me, one of the most inspirational voices for thinking followers of Jesus in America today. And so I am excited that you'll get to hear from him today. And then I'll come back and, uh, and finish the service. So now let's watch. Uh, it's a sermon called Making Sense of the Bible by Adam Hamilton. Today we're going to talk about the Bible
1: and how the Bible itself trips many people up, the things that are found in the Bible. And I'm going to be sharing with you a a 33-minute summary of a book that I wrote a number of years ago called Making Sense of the Bible, Rediscovering the Power of Scripture Today. And I mention that because if, you know, we're just scratching the surface, if you really want to go deeper, pick up the book and take a look. I think you'll find that uh, there's some, you know, answers to the questions that you have if you're somebody who's wrestled with Scripture. So uh, before we dive in, I'd share with you a video one of our members sent uh, this last week of, uh, of their family worshiping last week. And while I was preaching what their dog was doing, take a look. Yeah, you can barely hear my voice in the background and that dog is cutting some serious Z's. And here's my hope is that during this message, I'm going to keep you awake today, that you're going to stay awake and I'm going to talk fast. I'm going to invite you to listen fast and have a pen and paper and take some notes as we talk about scripture. So let's begin by talking about some of the struggles people have with scripture because many of you have read the Bible and you're like I don't have any struggles with it I just think it's beautiful and great and that's terrific but for many of us and I will tell you myself included there are things in the Bible that I really wrestle with now I love the Bible. I came to faith by reading the Bible. As a 14 year old kid, I just started reading the Bible from the first, you know, from the opening pages all the way to the end, reading it straight through. And I got to the Gospel of Luke and I thought, you know what, I believe in God and I do wanna follow Jesus. I mean, this book is a book that changed my life. I carry it with me everywhere I go. I got a pocket Testament and many of you know, it's shaped just like my backside here. And, uh, And I read it every single day. My day begins reading scripture. I pray the scriptures. I memorize the scriptures. I try to live the scriptures. I preach and teach the scriptures. I study the scriptures in small groups and on my own, I love this book. It is the defining story of my life. And because I love it, and because I have read it so much, I find there are places that I wrestle with the text. And there are things, there are ways you've got to look at the Bible and go, okay, I think we have to explain this somehow if you're taking the Bible seriously. So I want us to take the Bible seriously. Let me just give you some examples. So so I think about one of our members who came to me with, you know, having read through the entire Bible and he said, look, I'm really disturbed by some of the things I read. I love Jesus and the way he lives and talks and what he says and does, but I don't know about these places where God calls people to put their children to death if they're disobedient. Or if somebody works on the Sabbath, a man was gathering sticks on the Sabbath and he was commanded to be put to death. Like, what do you do with that? Or the time to where God has commanded people to slaughter, you know, entire villages of people, right? Not just villages, city-states. There were hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands of people who were put to death at God's command. What do you do with that? When, when Jesus teaches us to love even our enemies, and then there are parts of the Bible that people struggle with, you know, do I have to take these literally? There's a story of Noah and the ark, like in Genesis chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, we read that the flood waters of Noah's ark rose to above the tallest mountains on the earth, 45 feet above the tallest mountains. The tallest mountain is like 29,000 feet. So that means mean a flood that covered the entire world with water 29,045 feet deep. And what happened to the water when it was gone? And there are people who come up with interesting, you know, ways of explaining this. But that's, you know, one of those places. Did, did the ark actually have room to fit all of the animals in the, in the earth that didn't swim in the water? So all of the reptiles, all the birds, and all of the mammals fit inside a both the size of the Titanic. Or actually smaller than the Titanic, if I remember correctly. I mean, you know, those are the kind of questions sometimes people ask. Was Jonah really swallowed by a big fish? And how did he stay alive inside the belly of the fish for three days and three nights? I mean, those are the kind of questions people ask. Or or were there literally 2.5 million Israelites, you know, wandering through the wilderness together? I mean, that'd be a line of Israelites if they're walking that's, you know, 100 miles long, something like that. I mean, and they're all drinking in the midst of the desert from one, you know, rock that's pouring forth water. I mean, how does that work? So, you know, there's a whole lot of questions like this that we ask when we read the scriptures. There are also contradictions in the Bible, places where the same story is told in two different ways, and they don't line up together perfectly. But the biggest stumbling block for many people is the apparent injustice uh, we find in scripture. And we talked about that a little bit, but, but I think about something that Richard Dawkins once wrote in his book, The God Delusion. He's one of the most outspoken atheists alive today. And, and he raises important questions, but, but he sometimes goes a little over the top. This is what he said about the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. I mean, that's pretty over the top, but that's, you know, when you look at these certain passages that you wrestle with in the scripture, that's where a guy like Richard Dawkins comes out as an atheist. Like that's what he sees when he looks at scripture. Now I want to be clear. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. And we're talking about several hundred verses out of 30, 31,000 verses in scripture. But those trip a lot of people up. By the way, I want to mention too, one last thing. And that is that, that uh, the Bible, one thing that trips people up about the Bible is the fact that it's been used to justify all kinds of horrible things. So pre-Civil War, the pulpits from Southern churches had preachers who were justifying slavery because of the Bible, right? And, and we know that there's over 200 verses of the Bible that's, that affirm or allow for slavery. Like, Why is that? Right? Or, or we look to see how the KKK used, uh, used scripture to support racism. Or, or how Hitler found in scripture a support for anti-Semitism. Or how men have used the Bible verses on women keeping silent in the church. And, and, and you know, the, the woman being subordinate to the husband or submissive to the husband. As a way of justifying all kinds of terrible things. In their treatment of their wives and their daughters in the past. And as you looked at the attack on the Capitol last week. You saw there were people with scripture verses on their signs who were also charging up the steps at the Capitol, who were marching into the Capitol, who were breaking into the Capitol. But these were people, some were clutching their Bibles as they were marching forward. Like all kinds of things we can justify by looking at the scripture and finding just the right verse and taking it out of context. All right. So let me reiterate that if these were the primary you know, if, if this was the overarching message of scripture, this kind of, you know, women uh, in a subordinate place and slavery allowed and, and killing gay men and, uh, and slaughtering children and, and all of this, if, if that's what the Bible is really all about, nobody would read it. I, I wouldn't read it. My life would have never been changed, but I wouldn't encourage a single person to read a Bible like that. But what we're going to find is there are places in scripture, small, this is a, a very small note within the totality of scripture where we find these things. And we do have to ask the question, what do we do with these? in our Bible? What do we do with them? And that leads to a deeper question. And that is what kind of book is the Bible anyway? And how did we get it? And where did it come from? So some people treat the Bible like the magic eight ball. I don't know if you remember this or not. It's, uh, you know, you ask a question and then you turn it over and there's inside this little inky water. You'll find a, you'll find a sign, you know, am I supposed to, uh, you know, quit my job. Signs point to yes, it says. Some people read the Bible that way. Like, like, God, I'm trying to find an answer to my question. So here's my question. Then they open it up and they point their finger down and they, and they read the particular passage of scripture. And, and what we find when we read the Bible that way is we're misusing the Bible. And we're likely to get, you know, scriptures that speak in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect God's will to our lives, for our lives, for that particular question. Because that's not really how the Bible is designed to work. It's not a magic eight ball. Some people think of the Bible as uh, like an owner's manual. And again, some of you have heard me share this uh, talk before. It's like like an owner's manual. This is my owner's manual for for my car, a 2013 Mustang. And when you open it up, you know, I wish the Bible were like this. I mean, you start off and it's got, you know, talk about the safety systems. And then it walks you through step-by-step every single control in the car and how to use it and what to do and how you drive it and how, you know, and, and then it gets into the maintenance that you've got to do, the required maintenance. And then finally towards the end, you get to the troubleshooting, right? I wish the Bible were like that. I wish you could just open it up and say, look, here's exactly how you're supposed to live your life. Here's what you do in this situation. Here's what you do in this situation. Here's what you do in this situation. And when you're having problems, here's what you should do right? That would be awesome. But that's not how the Bible actually works. When we read the Bible, we find it starts off with stories of of uh, ancient people in a garden and floods. And, and then we get into uh, the story of uh, uh, a man named Joseph and, and how he was wrongly imprisoned and, and you know, sent away to slavery by his brothers, and then we get into the liberation of the Israelite slaves, and then we get to the conquest of Canaan uh, by the Israelites, the freed slaves, and then, and then from there we go into the story of these you know, great heroic figures who were judges over the land, and then we get into the kings and queens of ancient Israel, and then finally we get to the poetry, and once we get to the poetry, we move through that, and we get to the prophets who were speaking about the injustices and the wrongs in, the, in, their, in their world in the times in which they lived, generally from about 750 B.C. to about 400 B.C., with a few going a little after that. Then we're ready for the New Testament and we get to the New Testament. We find four gospels filled with the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts, which tells us the stories of the early church. And then finally we get into the epistles written by the apostles. These are letters written to churches and individuals by the earliest leaders of the church, giving them direction, answering their questions. And then finally we get to the end of the New Testament and we find the apocalypse of John where we've got multi-headed beasts coming out of the water in a final battle. And that's right where the troubleshooting guide should be. And and you read that and you go, whoa, wait a minute. This doesn't actually function like an owner's manual. These are, these are stories, narrative stories, and there's poetry, and there's, there's didactic teaching and, and, and written to people in a particular context. And then our task is to figure out, well, what were they trying to say? Why were they writing these things? What was the particular context in which they were writing? What did it mean for the people then? And then how do we translate into our own lives today? It just doesn't work quite like an owner's manual. I will say it's more profound than that, but it's certainly not just like an owner's manual. Now, often people will speak of the Bible as the word of God. And so that sounds pretty amazing and awesome. Like the Bible is the word of God. And so so many people um, will take their Bible and they're just going to assume that as they read it, every single thing they read in there is God speaking. But what we find is there are many places where other people are speaking. You get to the book of Job and Job has several friends that God is really frustrated with. And a lot of the book of Job is the friends saying things that God doesn't agree with. Right? And there are many times we're going to find things in Scripture that are not necessarily God's words, but people's words. And actually, I'm going to suggest to you that when we look at the Bible, we're, actually, we're going to find that the Bible is, well, we know this. The Bible is written by people. It's written by human beings. Right? And those human beings were influenced by God, and they were focusing on God and asking about how God's will you know, related to their lives. But there were people with names who wrote these books. David is, attributed, you know, is associated with the Psalms. And, and, uh, and Ezra is associated with, uh, you know, with a whole set of books that you know, he might have been behind that captured the history of ancient Israel. And, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though they were written anonymously, and John written anonymously, you know, their names are associated with them. Paul signs his name to, most of his, to all of his epistles. And so you know, what we find is there are people who are writing these things. And as they're writing these things, they're writing to address the issues, the needs, the concerns of the people of their time. There are reasons why they're writing. And they're writing with a particular you know, purpose in mind. And as they're writing these things, they're addressing their world in the light of what they know about God and how they see God. And so this is really helpful for me to understand that people have written these things. I, I was sitting on an airplane once and there was a man sitting next to me and I was reading my pocket Testament. And he said, hey, that's a really great book. And I said, it is a great book. I, you know, I read it every day. And he said, what really amazes me is how you know, God inscribed every one of the words on stone tablets. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> that was just the 10 commandments. All the rest of it? You know, all the rest of it, the other 31, you know, thousand verses, human beings wrote, and they had names. And, and all of those human beings, none of them were perfect, right? None of them were, were, uh, were you know, without errors in, you know, in their lives and in, in how they lived and, and who they were. The only person who was ever perfect was Jesus. And Jesus didn't write any of the New Testament, but he's the subject of all of it. And so when we look at scripture, we're finding that it's written by people and those people live in times and places. And that helps me to be able to make sense of this. When we get to the creation story, this is written by, you know, people who live in the late bronze age. I'm not going to expect them to have 31st, you know, 21st century scientific knowledge as they're telling this story. I'm going to expect them to tell me what they believe about God in creating the world. I'm not that concerned about whether they got the science right. I want to know that they got the theology right, right? And the same is true with so much else that we find throughout the scriptures, So when we look at it, we recognize it's the words of people. And yet somehow God speaks through this book, right? We hear God's voice. If you, if you approach it by faith, you listen, you know, you pray, God, speak to me. The reason why I read my Bible every day. It's because God speaks to me through it. There are verses and they get me thinking about a certain thing or they they help me think about God's will for my life in this way. Or sometimes I read something, I think, whoa, I don't think that's quite right. And then I look at that in the light of some other scripture and and, and in that light of the other scripture, it helps me understand how the first scripture that troubled me might tell me more about the people in the time in which that scripture was written than the God who's calling me to follow him, right? But the scripture is where God speaks. When I think about how God speaks to us today, God speaks through the still small voice of his Holy Spirit. God speaks to us through preaching. I hope you hope you hear God speaking when you're listening to the sermons. And, and I pray for that every week and through the music and in and, and nature, we hear God speaking and through our friends, you know, in small groups and all of this. But the clearest way that God has spoken to us that we have physically, you know, at our disposal is a book that captures over 1500 years worth of people's reflections and experiences of God and how they felt God was speaking to them and leading them and guiding them and their, and their love for God and, And how they understood God's will for their lives and their experiences of God in every part of their lives. And when we read this and we read their stories and their words, we hear God's word coming through this profound book. So when we read these things, understanding that these were humans who were writing in a particular time and cultural context, it helps me to deal with those passages that are more troubling. Right or the places where there's inconsistencies, or it helps me to be able to ask when it comes to Noah and the ark and 29,000 feet of water. You know, I realize the point of that story isn't about how many feet of water there was on the earth. The point was that God looked at humankind and he grieved that humans were violent towards one another all the time. Look at Genesis 6, and that's what it says right up front: is God grieved because people were violent? The point of the story isn't how many animals could fit on a big boat. The point of the story was that God was grieving human violence and there's something wrong with us in our violence. And yet it also points to the fact that God was gracious and merciful and said, hey, I'm going to give them another try. And, you know, give them another shot at this. I mean, it wasn't a lesson in ancient hydrogeology. It was a lesson in faith and what's wrong with us in the human condition. Or Jonah getting swallowed by the big fish, you know, the, the point. And, and some people read that story quite literally. Some people read it as a parable. I tend to read it as a parable. So the, there was a point there. Jesus tells parables and, and he tells about people, fathers who had two sons and farmers who were scattering seed. And in this case, we got a prophet who, uh, who doesn't like what God has asked him to do. He's asked him to go to Israel's enemy and to preach to them and tell them to repent. But he hates his enemies and he goes the opposite direction, right? And then there's a terrible storm and, and he's thrown overboard. You know, the sailors say, what do we do? And he says, Jonah says, throw me over door, overboard. He's swallowed by a big fish. And, and the question isn't how much oxygen is inside that fish or how big was his throat so it could swallow a human being. You know, the point was that he sits in the belly of the whale for three days and lets the stink and the stench and the, and, the, and the chemicals eating away at him because he's still unwilling to go preach to the enemies of Israel and call them to transform their lives because God cared about them. Until finally he's willing to do that after three days and he's belched up onto the land and he goes and he preaches and they repent. And and that whole four chapters of the book of Jonah is not about whether a fish can swallow a person. It's about in our hearts, our tendency to hate our enemies and not wish anything good for them or not even wish them to know God and God's forgiveness and mercy. That was a really important message. But we miss the message when we're asking the wrong questions. All right, so how do we know when we get to passages, and by the, by the way, we get to places where there's inconsistencies in the text, and, and, and you know, here's an example of that. Uh, in Luke's gospel, he tells us that Jesus ascended to heaven after the resurrection in Bethany on the Mount of Olives. In John's gospel, he tells us Jesus ascended to heaven from the Galilee, 90 miles north. Now, those two both are not true. One of those is true, and one of them is not. But, you know, for me, Luke's writing this gospel 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he's got a whole variety of sources. He wasn't there, and this is how somebody remembers it. And John remembers it differently, writing 50 years after the resurrection of Christ. And and so to me, it doesn't really matter. Like, it's okay that they remember this differently. The point was that they thought this was an important story. So I want to ask, what does the story tell us? Not, did it happen in Bethany on the Mount of Olives or in the Galilee 90 miles to the north? All right, so when we're looking at all of these, you know, these passages, let me just remind you, the vast majority of scripture is, is beautiful, timeless. It's, you know, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and, and look to the mountains from whence my help comes, and, and be, be still, and know that I am God, and be quick to listen, and slow to speak, and slow to anger, and love God, and love your neighbor, and all of these kind of passages that are just profound, and beautiful, and true, and the stories of Jesus' life, and his death, and his resurrection. I mean, all of this, these are just beautiful, powerful stories that speak to us, but there are some of these passages that are troubling. And so I, I want to just reiterate this. I said it a moment ago, I'm going to say it again. This might be the number of verses in our Bible that we find deeply troubling and inconsistent with the character of God we find in Jesus. And this might be all of the rest of them that are showing us this beautiful picture of who God is and God's will for our lives. So the question I want to figure out is how do we read these and really hear them? And then with these, how do we understand them? So, I've taught our congregation this before, but, but the metaphor that I found really helpful is the metaphor of a colander. So a colander is used to wash uh, fruits and vegetables or sometimes to rinse pasta after you've cooked it. And, and the idea is that the stuff that, you know, you don't necessarily want to eat gets washed out, right? When it comes to scripture, the idea is, is there anything that we use to help us discern what are those things that reflect God's timeless will for our lives? And what are those things about which we might say, you know, I'm not really sure what to do with that, but I don't think that reflects how God wants me to live my life today. So what's the colander? I'm going to tell you the colander is first Jesus. This is the interpretive lens through which we read the Bible. So you do need to get to know Jesus so you can actually interpret the rest of Scripture pretty well. But John tells us that Jesus was the word of God made flesh. Right? So when God wanted to speak most clearly to us as human beings, he didn't send us a book. He sent us his son. So we look at Jesus and he is the light of the world. He He is the clearest picture we have of God. He is the unmitigated word of God. So when we look at Jesus, we see God, we understand God's will for our lives, God's character. So everything else we read in scripture, we're going to read through the lens of Jesus. That is the first and primary calendar. So when I'm reading something and something doesn't seem to line up with Jesus, well, I'm going to let it wash out a little bit and figure out, okay, I don't know what else I do with that. I'm going to try to understand that story in its context, but I know this about Jesus. I'll give you an example in the Hebrew Bible. It says that if a priest's daughter becomes a prostitute, he's to burn his daughter alive. Now, I don't know what you do with that text, but for me, as a pastor, if one of my daughters became a prostitute, I'm not going to burn her alive. I just, I can't picture that God is a God who tells parents and priests to burn their children alive. That's inconsistent with everything else we find in scripture. And when we come to Jesus, he befriends prostitutes. He shows mercy and love to them, right? And so the colander that I'm going to read that passage of scripture through is Jesus, who's befriending prostitutes and shows mercy to sinners and, and welcomes, you know, people who others look down their nose at. And I'm going to say, okay, I don't know what I do with that passage, but I do know this. And, and when we have a colander like that, when we have that lens, it helps us. And, and really, I would say this, it, Jesus is the primary colander. But then I think of what Jesus said, Jesus said that there were two really great commandments upon which everything else was built in scripture. It summarized everything else in the Bible. Do you remember them? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And about these, Jesus went on to say, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he says, Here's the most important thing to remember love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Whatever doesn't fit within that may not be so essential for you to, for you to you know, take in, or it may be things that you want to read and study, but but they may not be reflecting or expressing the will of God. So when we find something that doesn't sound like it's loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And remember, Jesus goes on to say, love your enemy. So kill every man, woman, and child in these villages, love your enemy, love your neighbor, right? Jonah's, you know, expressing concern for the Ninevites, the, the God calling the Magi, you know, from another nation to come and bow down before Christ. Jesus saying to go into all the world. I mean, all of these are pictures of what God is really like. And then we've got this passage over here and, and I'm not going to throw it out of the Bible. I'm just going to say that might tell me more about the people who were living in that time and the way they understood their gods than it tells me about who God really is. Here's an interesting thing. When you start studying ancient Near Eastern cultures and you look at the violence in the, in the early part of the Old Testament, you find every nation believed their gods sent people into war, their gods led them into war, their gods were warriors. And then there were times where the other nations around Israel also believed that their gods were telling them to to kill every man, woman, and child in certain villages and certain places. This was a common way of understanding how God worked tragically, but it is how people understood things. So I look at that in the light of the Noah story where God was grieved that human beings were killing each other. And which is it? God is grieved that human beings are killing each other. And, and love your enemy, or is it God commanding people to kill every man, woman, and child? Now, there are a lot of ways you can explain these texts, and you can interpret them. I'm just saying, when it comes to the colander, you know, the colander is to look at things through the lens of Jesus, and to look at things through the lens of justice and mercy and the character of God we find in Scripture. There's, a, there's other Scriptures we can think of. Jesus says, in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule, right? For this is the law and the prophets. So if I read something in scripture that's inconsistent with that, I'm going to remember that Jesus said, this is what the law and the prophets is really all about. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think about Micah 6:8. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All of these things you know, that, that we're reading in scripture, we're going to measure in the light of these kind of passages of scripture. And what we're going to find again is a very few passages of scripture that are troubling passages in this large, vast majority of scriptures about justice and kindness and mercy and love. And when we read them, those small numbers through the colander of the major message of scripture, we're going to be able to say, okay, you know what? These were human authors who were writing. God was working through them, but at the same time, they're people of a particular time and place. And I'm going to, I'm going to recognize that. And understand that perhaps those passages are telling us more about them and the time in which they lived than they're telling us about the God to whom we find witness born throughout the rest of scripture. All right. So I want to, I want to begin to wrap this up. Paul writes in our scripture passage that we have before us today, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work a really powerful passage of scripture. So when we look at that passage, a lot of people have taken that verse and they have created a whole theology of the Bible around it that is, um, well, it, it causes a lot of folks to get stuck when it comes to the Bible. So, so people, some people read this and they come up with what's called a doctrine of inerrancy. That is that, that the idea is that all scripture, every single word in the Bible was put there by God. So when they read inspired by God, they believe it's almost like God dictated every single word. And we kind of forget the humanity of the Bible and instead primarily see every single word as God's word. And so there's no questioning it. There's no, there's no sense that you know, maybe this is more about the people in that time as opposed to the God who, who they were trying to worship. And I'm going to suggest to you that that may not be an accurate understanding of this passage of scripture. Let me just say one more thing. Inerrancy is a doctrine that was the first time we find that word in the English language is in the 19th century. It doesn't appear anywhere before that. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you grew up in churches that taught inerrancy. Inerrancy means the Bible is is without error in everything that it says about science, about history, about theology. In in every way, the Bible is sometimes it said totally true and trustworthy. And then we find it, you know, all of these things I've been talking about really trip you up even more when that's how you that's your presupposition about the Bible. It can't be about its humanity and the historical and cultural context. Instead, it's totally true and trustworthy everywhere. And so on the extreme that gets you with, you know, six days of creation and science have to, has to conform to scripture and it all happened just exactly this way. But that's not how everybody un- understands the scripture. And by the way, in the early church, none of the creeds of the church mention inerrancy. So today many very conservative and fundamentalist churches, their faith statement starts with, I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Whereas throughout the history of Christianity, instead, what you heard is, I believe in God. So you believe in God or you believe in the inerrancy of scripture first. But for some, the inerrancy of scripture is the foundation upon which they build the rest of their faith. For us, our faith is built on God and scripture bears witness to or testifies to God. So anyway, Paul says all scripture. When he says all scripture, the word scripture there doesn't mean verse by verse, every single word. But instead, scripture is the word is graphe in Greek. It's all the writings. And, and I'll just remind you at that time, there was not a book called the Bible. There instead were many scrolls. So there were, ultimately, there would be roughly 66 books in the Bible. It would be a collection of, of writings. This is the book of Deuteronomy uh, in Hebrew. So when Paul says all scripture, there was some debate as to which of the sacred writings were really authoritative. And, and the New Testament, Paul's just writing it. So he's not talking about even the New Testament. He's talking about all of these scriptures that were important for the Jewish people. He says all of them are sacred. They're all, they're all sacred. God has breathed into them. So he says all scripture, meaning I think all of these scrolls, all of these, you know, documents that Jews were debating about uh, as to which ones had authority, all of them. He says all scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired here he, is a word that Paul makes up. It's a Greek word, theonoustos. Theonoustos is two words. It's a compound word. Theo means God and neustos means wind, air, breath, or spirit. We don't know which of those he meant here, but he, he made a word, he made up a word, he puts it together. It appears nowhere in the Greek language until 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and doesn't appear anywhere else in Paul's writings. All scripture is God-spirited, God-winded, God-breathed, inspired. All right, so all of these sacred writings are God-breathed, and, and the point was not to teach us exactly the definition of inspired. He leaves it wide open. So we're left to debate that. And I'm going to tell you, I think a better translation might be God influenced that God influences everything that we find in the scripture. And then God breathes through it when we're reading it and we hear God speaking through it, but it isn't teaching necessarily a doctrine of inerrancy or that God has somehow almost virtually dictated everything in the Bible. God is influencing what we find in scripture and it's useful. This is the important point. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction And for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is really important. Paul really is a pragmatist in the end. He's saying when we read our sacred text, God's Spirit has breathed through them and in them and on them and to us. And and you see, Paul, he looked at a scripture, he asked questions. Right? So he set aside circumcision, which was a requirement in the book of Genesis for all of Abraham's descendants. Paul says, we're all Abraham's descendants, but he sets aside this particular scripture. He's not reading it woodenly. He's not reading it where you can't wrestle with the text some. He's reading it. And yet he recognizes that God influences this book. And as he reads it, he finds it useful for all of these things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. That's how scripture works. We read it and and through it, we hear God speaking through it. We find correction and training and and we find help in leading our lives in the way that God wants us or living our lives in the way God wants us to live. I love Psalm 119 verse 105. The entire 119th uh, chapter of the book of Psalms is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's all about God's word. And what's interesting is that when Psalm 119 is written, most of the Bible had not been written yet. Of course, none of the new Testament, most of the old Testament had not been written yet. And yet he speaks about thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I love that verse because that is how I intend to live my life with God's word being a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So what does he mean by God's word? If the Bible hadn't really, most of it hadn't been written yet. Well, certainly he does mean the portions that had been written in particular, the 10 commandments, but also the stories, the narrative stories about how God liberated the slaves in Egypt. I mean, all of these stories become a way of helping us understand who God is and God's will for our lives. And he's talking about how the still small voice, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Most, most people couldn't read in that time. And so the spirit speaks to their hearts and the preaching of the people and, the, and they're studying together and, and in all of these ways, God speaks, but it's the message. The word is the message. The word of God is the message of God and about God and God's will for our lives. That is a lamp, a light to my, or a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the way, the place that we find most clearly You know, the testimony to who God is and God's will for our lives, the the one place we go where we can most clearly hear God speak to us is the scriptures. This is why I read this book every single day. This is why I know there's things that are going to be troubling in there. And that's okay because I recognize the Bible's humanity. And I also recognize God's influence all the way through it. But every day to wake up and say, speak, Lord, I'm listening. And sometimes, you know, when I'm listening, I'm wrestling with the text. But most of the time I'm listening and I feel like God is speaking just to me a word for my life about who he is and who he calls me to be and how I'm meant to live for him. I find in this book words of life. All right. So I want to wrap this up by mentioning that, uh, you know, I've given you a 30 minute summary of making sense of the Bible. If you really want to go deeper and understand inerrancy and understand all these other things, turn there into making sense of the Bible. But, but mostly what I want to do is invite you to actually open the Bible and read it. If you're somebody who's a skeptic, you've got questions, you're not certain what you think about the Bible, I'd like to invite you to read it with this understanding, to read it understanding that we're seeing the humanity and the historical and cultural context of of the people of faith. At the same time, we're seeing God working in and through them and how they understood God's will for their lives. And then we're hearing God speak. As we hear God speak to them, we hear God speaking to us. And by the time you get to the gospels in the New Testament, you look at Jesus and you hear the definitive word of God and you're going to find in his words and in his life, words of life for you. So this Lent, it start, Lent starts February 21st. We as a congregation are going to be studying the gospel of Mark. And I want to encourage you to consider joining us for this study. Uh, so we've got a month to go before we get there, but we're going to be reading every week, every day. We're going to be reading through the gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of the gospels. It was the earliest gospel written we're going to read through it together. I'm going to be preaching from it in small. We're going to be forming small groups. And one of the best ways to study the Bible is with other people. And you read and you say, well, what did you get out of that passage? What did you get out of that passage? We're going to invite you to journal and write down the things as you, as you're reading scripture to write down the things that begin to speak to you. And here's what I'm going to promise you is if you come at this, you're you're willing to actually open your Bible and read it. And we'll even send you a free Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we've got pocket testaments. We'll send you a, a pocket Testament. You let us know, and we will make sure we get one to you, but we want you to be able to Read this, open it up and read it. Listen, God, speak to me. Help me to hear. Read, underline, write down the things that that speak to you. And and I promise you, and and then talk about it with other people. And in the midst of doing that, you're going to find God's will for your life. You're going to hear God speaking to you. And you're going to find again, wonderful words of life. Listen, I love the Bible. I read it every single day. I memorize it. I study it. I pray it. And most of all, I try to live it. And sometimes I wrestle with it. And that's okay. Let's pray. God, how grateful we are to you for the way that you have spoken in and through this book, the Bible. How you influenced its human authors. How you give us permission to be able to wrestle as Jacob wrestled with you all night. That we're able to read the scripture and wrestle with the scripture. And and how you call us to read all of the scripture in the light of Jesus. The colander. In the light of the words that he spoke. And the call to love God and love our neighbor. Help us, O Lord, to be curious, to be willing to open up the scriptures, to hear your voice, and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.